In the years since the deadly crash that is the subject of this episode, one woman I interviewed became the national spokesperson for Mothers Against Drunk Driving for the cause of bus and vehicle safety. She channeled the sorrow of losing her child into work that would make everyone's child safer while riding on school buses. Another faced life as a single mom with two young children. She had to become the breadwinner instantly, but her loss wasn't over. Her effects weren't limited to the loss of her husband and father of her children. Two decades later, and several states over, tragedy would strike as fiercely as ever without warning. You are listening to Episode 5 of Telling Lives Season 2, Alcohol, Intoxicants, Accidents in America. I'm your host, Elizabeth Clark. Warning, total nerd alert coming. Sometimes on Saturday mornings, while my husband is still sleeping, I will get up and grade papers, read a book, or find a documentary to watch. Last spring, I turned on Netflix looking for a documentary on homelessness to maybe replace the one I've been using for several years in one of my classes, and I happened upon impact after the crash about the deadliest DUI crash in American history. I watched the trailer. The crash involved a church bus with a bunch of teenagers in 1988. That was me. I had to watch it. May 14, 1988. I was a church kid, and I was 15 that summer, about the same age as many of the kids on the Ratcliffe First Assembly of God church trip. Like their trip to Kings Island Amusement Park that May Day, We boarded our Pass Road Baptist Church bus and headed to Six Flags in Atlanta in June. Listening to the stories, I saw so many similarities in my own teenage life, and I agonized over thinking what it must have been like to lose your best friends, your young love, your pastor, your parent. I thank God this was not my story. Sadly, people are still dying due to drunk driving. This is the story of the worst DUI crash in American history. The victims of the fatal crash on the drunk driver, driver was arraigned this afternoon after police say he drove the whole way down a major natural crash that turned a secret family's lives upside down. It happened last night on South Highlands Avenue and UCS Lane. A strong way driver hit a car head on the morning of May 15, 1988, Mandy and Charlie Kaida woke up late. It was a Sunday morning, and like most church-going families, Sunday is a lot of hustle and bustle and rushing to eat breakfast, get dressed nice for church, and getting out the door for Sunday school. In the 1980s, it took a little extra effort because we still dressed our best to look good for Jesus, not like lazy Saturday mornings eating cereal in our PJs in front of the TV watching our favorite cartoons. Mandy was 11 and her little brother was 10. Their dad, Chuck Kaida, was a youth pastor at First Assembly of God in Radcliffe, Kentucky. They always went to church. So this morning, when they woke up late, They thought it was funny, that their parents must have overslept or the alarm hadn't gone off. 
I can remember very, very clearly the morning of when we found out because my brother and I, we had a room upstairs, a bedroom, and it was Sunday morning, and we really thought we had got away with something because we woke up and we were like, we're not at church. We didn't have to go to church. So we were giggling and laughing, and we were at the top of the stairs, so we ran down the stairs together thinking it was hilarious. And then we come to the bottom of the stairs and we see my mom talking with my grandparents, her parents. And we just, we knew because my grandparents were crying, my mom was crying, and so we just froze. Something was definitely wrong. And those were the last few seconds before their lives were forever changed. When the kids had gone to bed the night before, their dad hadn't made it in from the big annual youth trip to Kings Island in Cincinnati. And... My mom took us upstairs and she told us on the bed that um, my dad had been killed. And at that point, we weren't positive. We didn't know for sure. She told us there was an accident. Downstairs, their mom, Janet Kaida, whose last name is now Hancock, had been dealing with the news of the bus crash for hours. Chuck was the heart of the family, and he was gone. All their plans literally up in smoke. And she had to tell his parents before they heard it on CNN and their precious children, but not yet. She would let them have one last good night's sleep before destroying their world. May 14th had been a beautiful day. Janet had been so busy finishing up her first year of nursing school. And so when we came back and we settled in Elizabethtown um, after the service uh, near my parents and family and things, we really led a very simple lifestyle. We didn't have a lot of money. Um, he worked at the bank as a loan officer, and he was very good at that. He was working at Radcliffe First Assembly as an associate pastor, and we had had a couple bad experiences in churches, you know, trying to find that church, and so he was really enthusiastic. Um, I was raised up a Wesleyan church, which is a more conservative church, so I didn't know what to think about it. And about Oh, it was probably about 1985, 86, I told him, I said, you know, if something happens to you and we have these two kids, there's no way I have a supporting them. Full-time ministry was the family's plan, and Janet had been working and going to school to support that calling. But Chuck knew Janet was exhausted, and he agreed that she needed to focus on school, and Janet resigned from her part-time job. May had been a busy month for all of the Kaida family, and the end of the school year annual trip to Kings Island was something many kids in the greater Cincinnati area looked forward to. Dozens of church groups all met for the annual event. But Mandy and Charlie had gotten in trouble, and Mom and Dad had said no to the field trip that day. They had been acting up, you know, and doing fighting with each other and everything, and I said, you guys are grounded. Mandy remembers feeling disappointed about not getting to go. Like I said, he was a youth pastor, and then he led the choir, and um, so he was, you know, the one who kind of put the trip together. Um, My brother and I were supposed to be on the trip, and then, I don't know if my mom told you or not, we got in trouble, like, the day before, (laughs) because we were arguing a lot and everything, and so we weren't able to go on the trip, because one of my best friends, she was there and all this, and I was just, I remember being super upset. Um, but my dad did take my brother and I out for ice cream the day before and everything. And so we got to spend time with him before they left. And so that's kind of, that would be my last memory with my dad. 
So early morning, May 14th, 63 children and four adult chaperones boarded the First Assembly Church school bus and headed for a day of fun at Kings Island in Cincinnati. The distance from the church in Radcliffe, Kentucky is about 175 miles or three hours driving time. Remember in 1988, there were no cell phones, so no one expected to hear from them until they returned very late that Saturday night and called from the church saying they were back. Across town, Carolyn Nunnally had agreed with her husband Jim to let their older daughter Patty go on the trip just a few days prior. Patty was a fourth grader and her younger sister Jean was in kindergarten. Disclaimer, Carolyn Nunnally's audio is a little messed up. It's all my fault. I'm not a technical guru. That's what I have Erin Quartermont for. And all of her audio is going to sound slightly distorted. She does not sound like that in real life. I simply had my recorder slightly too close to the computer when I recorded her interviews. Before Patty died, I felt like we were on top of the world. You know, we had the American dream of you know, we, we rented a house because we were in the military, but we had two two cars and and two children and the, the pets and, and everything else. So it was, um, we were basically living the dream and both very healthy and as were our families. And so um, I, I just felt very, very blessed to, to have the life that I had. Patty had come in after school one day with her best friend, Jill, whose family went to First Assembly, and asked if she could go with Jill and the church group to Kings Island. Most of the kids going were teenagers, though, and Carolyn wasn't so sure about allowing her 10-year-old daughter to go on the trip, especially since she herself would be in Florida to check on her ailing mother on the day of the trip. But Jill's mother, Joy, called me and said, Carolyn, we're going. Um, we're going to Kings Island. We're taking the church bus, and I'll be there. And Jill, Jill and Patty would be the youngest, so it would really be nice for Jill to be able to have somebody to hang out with all day. Because the older kids, you know how older kids are, they wouldn't have anything to do with the youngers. Right. And most of the kids were fourteen and older, and Jill and Patty were ten. So uh, I talked to my husband and we thought, well, you know, basically what could be safer than a school bus? And when I talked to the principal, she said, oh, Carolyn, this bus, you know, they have a first aid kit and they have a fire extinguisher and those padded seats, you know, all the things that are wrong with buses. Right. And I found out later. May 9th, Carolyn flew to Florida to see her critically ill mother and left dad Jim in charge of their two girls. Also that week, Patty participated in a speech contest. She was competing against students all the way through 12th grade. Patty's speech gave me chills when her mother read it to me over the phone, but it's tragically ironic in hindsight and also speaks to the character and intelligence of this young girl who, by the way, won third place for this foretelling speech. The following is an excerpt from Patty's speech. Destiny, Choice, Not Chance, by Patricia Patty Susan Nunnally. I feel destiny is a choice made by you. 
Destiny should not come by chance. If destiny comes by chance, you may not have a good life. You may not live the way you want to live. In life, there are many choices to be made. Sometimes we lack the knowledge to make decisions and must learn from our mistakes. You must learn from your mistakes and the mistakes of others. You have to look for your destiny. Today, opportunities are endless. You should choose to pattern yourself after those people who are positive and successful. You have the opportunity to strive for whatever life can give. No one's destiny should be left to chance. Life is like a ladder. You must climb up one step at a time. If you slip, you must start again, this time showing more caution until you finally reach the top. Realize your potential. Know what your limits are and try to go past those limits. Try to go that extra mile and let success be your stronghold. Do not dwell on your failures, but remember that there are lessons to be learned from failure. Your greatest asset is remembering what and who helped you achieve your goals. There are hundreds of people who, because of their environment, were destined to fail. They, however, chose to change their destiny and succeed where there was no chance of success before. They prove that you have a choice in life, and if the right choices are made, you can succeed, even if society makes you think you can't. If you believe in yourself, you have the potential to change your destiny. You might have to work harder than others to change your destiny, but the end result will be pride and self-satisfaction and the knowledge that you have done your very best. Your future should not be left to chance. To meet your destiny, you must be careful to make the right choices because you may only have one chance. Patty delivered her speech on May 10th. And um, I really wish I had not missed it, but I did. So, you know, we were just so proud because her words were just incredible. But Carolyn had no idea at the time that her sweet girl was going to meet her destiny before the week was out. And a young man in Carrollton, Kentucky, was going to take a chance on making it home intoxicated and instead would go down in history as the perpetrator of the worst DUI crash in American history. 34-year-old factory worker Larry Mahoney had been drinking. A lot. Friends say they knew he was too drunk to drive, but he assured them he was going straight home from the bar, one of his regular haunting grounds. Janet Kaida anguishes over this decision his friends admitted to on the stand during Mahoney's trial. His friends took his keys away, and then he made a big deal about it, swore he would just go home, and they gave it back to him. And at that point, to me, that's the point where the bus crash was going to happen. So Larry got into his Toyota pickup truck and headed home, or so he thought. He hopped up on Interstate 71, just as the Radcliffe Church bus was headed home, nearing the halfway point in their return trip. Only Larry was headed the wrong direction, and he didn't realize it due to his blood alcohol concentration three times the legal limit at .24. Larry's truck rammed into the bus's fuel tank, causing a massive explosion. Janet and Carolyn's lives were changed forever, but they were at this time still blissfully unaware of what had transpired. 
Janet learned many of the details of the crash later when she attended every day of Mahoney's trial. He was injured and then, you know, of course they had him in custody. And as is true for most of them times, he had no memory of it. You know, he, when he says when he woke up, they told him what had happened and he had no memory of it. When he kind of hit one and then went into the place, I mean, like, it couldn't have been worse where he hit the butts because that's where Chuck was standing. Chuck was standing in the stairwell. Janet got the news of the crash hours before Carolyn. So I called Jim Saturday night to see this would have been the 13th, the 14th of May, to see how things were going. And he said, well, but the kids were going to get in late, so Patty was going to spend the night with Jill. And I said, okay, so, you know, I went to bed thinking everything is wonderful. She woke up the next morning and went to church with her nieces and nephews and took them to a nice Sunday lunch afterward. But when she got back to her parents' home, her in-laws were in the driveway. And I, I didn't think much of it because back then, you know, people visited. They drove and visited. And um, so anyway, when I walked in the house, my dad was sitting in, in his chair and I looked down at him and I thought, the look on his face, I thought, my mother has died. And my father-in-law stood up and said, Carolyn, there's been an accident. By lunchtime back in Kentucky, the tragedy had been reality for more than 12 hours. Folks had been gathering at the church all night waiting for news, updates, and miracles. Janet said the first call she got that something was amiss was between 9 and 10 p.m. Her friend Linda called and told her she needed to call the church. Linda's voice told her it was serious. She called and was told to come immediately. Janet called her mom to come stay with the kids and then headed to the church a short distance away. I went down the road and when I got to the church, I was like, it was bizarre. I pulled in and the church was lit up and there I could hear helicopters and I could see people dressed in military uniforms and I saw news reporters, um, just people everywhere. Walked over towards the offices and along the wall there were lists. And there was a list from like different hospitals and there was lists from like um, Baptist East and Norton's Cosairs and it had kids' names in degree of burn and percentage. So they had all these lists. Then the last list was of the missing. And there was 19 names, I think, on the missing. So Chuck's name was on there. Well, I don't know how I knew, but I knew. They were all dead. All night long, 1, 2, 3 a.m., more people arrived at the church. More families were told their children were gone. One church member lost his entire family. Miraculously, 40 people made it off the bus that night. All were injured in some way or another. Many had life-altering burns. Communication was so different in 1988. It took time to determine who was on the bus and who had made it off and was being treated in hospitals.
No cell phones, no internet, remember? Even tracking down loved ones wasn't an easy task in some cases. Carolyn, still in Florida, didn't have many details. Remember, Patty was a guest of a church member. They did not attend First Assembly regularly. But about that time, Jim called me, and he asked me where Patty's dental records were. Oh. And my my logical mind knew why he asked. But my illogical mind thought, she's just lost. She's Nobody knows her off the strip. She's just lost. There's been a lot of confusion, and she's in a hospital somewhere. You know, I just pictured her as like having chimney sweep smut on her face and and you know but I I got on my knees and I prayed to God I said God please let me have Penny back but and and it, and she's so badly burned that you're gonna take because you know, they told me there was a fire and I knew something had to happen for dental records you know that that doesn't mean they just stumped their toe Right, I said, if she's if she can survive her burns, dear God, please let me have her back. And I said, but if you're going to take her anyway, please have taken her quickly. Please have taken her quickly. For Janet, she knew in her gut Chuck was dead, and some of the survivors actually saw him die. Eventually, she took comfort in that. She told me she saw Chuck die, and um. You know, she told me. She told me. She said, "You know, he had flames," and she said the flames just went up him. And she said he raised his hands and he just said, "Lord, I'm coming home." The hardest part was knowing her children had lost their father. And it was just like when I told them, they just were devastated. Chuck was a really good dad. <clears throat> he was never one where. It was like babysitting to him. He would go get, like, we didn't have a lot of money to buy fancy toys, but he'd go get um, a cheap toy at the Dollar General store. He'd take them out to a park, and they'd spend their day out there just doing goofy stuff. When, you know, just things like that. He he was very involved, in, or he would take them, and they'd go and play basketball at the church with the teens or something like that. He was with them all the time. And I felt really bad for them because I was just like, your life is never going to be the same. I can never fix this. Chuck Kaida and Patty Nunnally and many others had to be identified through dental records because of how badly burned the dead were. The temperatures inside the bus reached 2,000 degrees. And Larry Mahoney was in the hospital himself, recovering from serious injuries. He would never remember the crash. Mahoney only gave one interview following the crash that took 27 lives. Janet and her son Charlie would attend every day of Mahoney's trial. On the stand, Mahoney said he was sorry, but Janet was angry. Sorry helped nothing. The damage was done. Deaths were irreversible. Even those less physically injured would suffer from the images and the tragedy for a lifetime. And Mahoney was sorry. Many of the witnesses on his behalf just didn't act like it was a big deal. He's a good old boy. You know, he's just, he's just like one of us. It could have happened to anybody. In the end, Larry Mahoney was convicted of 27 counts of second-degree manslaughter, 
16 counts of second-degree assault, 27 counts of first-degree wanton endangerment, and one count of driving under the influence of intoxicants. The sentences for each would run concurrently, and he would receive a 16-year sentence. Janet couldn't believe the lenient sentence for destroying so many lives, but she told me she was able to forgive him. Larry Mahoney? Yes. Yeah, I'm required to. I mean, I'm a Christian, and I pray that he has his life right with God and that he's confessed, and, you know, um, if that's the case, when, when he dies, he's going to go to heaven. We're going to be there together. <laughs> I mean, it may be a challenge. I mean, I'm... I don't know that I'm ready to sit down and break bread with him. That um, when I look at him, it's just like you can't really hate him enough for 27 deaths. But Charlie never really got over losing his dad at age 10. He never really, he never got over it. He was really always angry that his dad had been taken from him that way. I really, I mean, like. He just couldn't soothe his heart on that, I don't think. And, you know, I was thankful that I had the two kids, that I had grounded them. They could have been on the bus. There was many things to be thankful for. Recovering for Carolyn was different because she didn't have the close-knit bond of the church family. She really didn't know any of them. And then her family left the area and moved in September of that year to New Mexico, where she had no circle of friends. Her mother, who had been ill for months, also passed away. And her father had a heart attack and died during Larry Mahoney's trial. So within six months after, or a year after Patty's death, less than a year, I lost Patty, my mother, and my dad. So, you know, I, I, I felt I was better able to deal with her passing because she's older. Right. You know. Two weeks after the crash, after I got back to Radcliffe, I was sitting in my living room, and Jean was not there, our younger daughter. I don't, I don't remember where she was, but I was sitting there, and it was just, I was terribly depressed. Just, it was, I just, I, I probably, I, my, my thought was I would commit suicide, but I can't leave Jean. You know, that it, it was just so hard. And I kept thinking, what can I do? What can I do? And I went down to the local mad chapter. Well, the, the local mad president worked in the mayor's office. And I went down there and I said, my name is Carolyn Nunley. And I want to stop drunk driving. Carolyn has spent the rest of her life dedicated to the cause of reducing drunk driving focusing extensively on vehicle and bus safety. For decades now, buses have cages around their fuel tanks to prevent the kind of catastrophic crash that happened May 14, 1988. Carolyn and Jim have retired and moved back to Fort Meade, Florida. Like Janet, she too said she has forgiven Larry Mahoney. And I had forgiven Larry Mahoney. And the reason I forgave him because he was eating me like a cancer because of what he had done. Right. But then I just had this, I, I can't say God spoke to me because I don't remember hearing him. 
but I, I don't doubt that's what it was. But I do remember, you know, just knowing that if I don't forgive this man, he will kill me just as he killed my daughter. Yeah. And I realized that he didn't care how I felt. He didn't remember the crash. He didn't remember, you know, the only way he remembers is by reading what happened. He was drunk at the time. Three times believable. And so he does not remember. And he was a repeat offender. So he did this. You know, he drove drunk time after time. He, he probably drove drunk every time he got in a car. Janet moved to Oklahoma with her kids a couple of years after the crash and eventually remarried and had two more children. Her last name is Hancock now. She's worked as a nurse for many years. Mandy and Charlie grew up and had families of their own. Mandy now lives in Colorado and works as a high school counselor, mentoring many kids, she says, who start drinking by middle school. And I think people would be shocked if they knew how often that's happening. And it's just flying under the radar because until somebody dies, you don't realize it's happening. But she says it isn't just alcohol anymore. Many young people are mixing prescription drugs and recreational marijuana with alcohol. Oh, there's a lot. There's there's so much. I mean, we do, at the high school I work at, we're doing presentations for the high schoolers about drugs and driving and drinking and driving and recreational drugs and driving. And it's, I think for this, for Colorado, it was one of those things where they legalized marijuana and they weren't quite prepared for the issues that would come along with it, for instance, traffic deaths. <laughs> and so they've been trying to backtrack and take care of that. Janet, who was never a drinker and didn't keep alcohol in her home, says she isn't sure they think the same way about drinking and driving. Even though she and her two older children lost so much, she said she had so much support along the way. On September 1st, 1999, Larry Mahoney was released from the Kentucky State Reformatory after serving just 10 years for killing 27 people and hurting dozens more. Because it had been more than five years, Since his last DUI, he could legally apply for a new driver's license without restrictions. Though it's unknown if he did, I could not find any record of any further DUIs. Now in his late 60s, Larry reportedly lives a quiet life in Kentucky and wishes to have no contact with crash survivors. He has not spoken of the crash publicly since 1989. He did not take part in the 2013 documentary. For more information about this, there's a documentary I mentioned earlier called Impact After the Crash that details more about the horrific crash and its aftermath. There are so many more parts to this story. Many of the survivors suffering did not end that day, and some are still in pain from that 1988 crash 35 years ago. Janet couldn't imagine suffering another loss like that. Well, I really thought after the bus crash, it's kind of like, I kind of like I felt inside, maybe like you've paid the price. Nothing like this can happen again to your family because, you know, when the dial spins, it can't land on you guys again. That's the way I kind of felt. But life isn't like that. And no matter how careful you are, 
you can't ever account for when other people's choices are going to affect you and your family. Janet was at work the morning of August 31st, 2010 at St. John's Hospital in Tulsa, working on the pediatric floor. Her phone rang, and it was her daughter-in-law, Charlie's wife. She thought it was odd for her to call at work, but she couldn't answer at the time, and so she kept treating her patients. Minutes passed, and another nurse approached her and told her HR was trying to reach her, that her husband was downstairs and trying to find her. Because Janet was a float nurse, she was assigned to different units daily. So I picked up the phone, and he was really mad. He was mad at the human resource person. He goes, she won't tell me where you're at. Where are you? I said, I'm up on the pediatric floor. And he goes, I'm coming, I'm coming up there. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, there's been an accident. And I said, who? And I said, is he okay? He said, no. And I knew he was gone. Charlie was on his way to work at Omni Air International at the Tulsa airport that morning. He was a pilot and director of dispatch. And a man had driven across the highway. Same thing and people were trying to avoid him and he hit Charlie nearly head on and this guy's uh, car flipped over him and then Charlie was on the side of the road and um, he drove a Beamer and we looked on the news you know there he was, and there was a sheet on the side of the road, and he was under it, and he was gone. Charlie was 32. He was so much like his dad. I mean, they, in some ways, but he was always very shy, and, you know, he was quiet. He loved to hunt. He loved guns. He loved things like that. He loved to fly. He loved to fly planes. And he was not, like, outgoing like Chuck in that way, but they were very similar in appearance and in... Uh, very good man. Charlie left behind a wife of 14 years, Layla, and a two-year-old daughter, Amanda, named after his sister, Mandy. Charlie and Layla had met as teenagers while both working at McDonald's, and it had been love at first sight. Layla told reporters after the crash that Charles, the name she called her husband by, was her one and only true love, and that he kissed her and Amanda goodbye that morning as he did every morning. Sadly, like Charlie, Amanda would wind up growing up without her father as well. Very sweet. She always wants to hear things. She's a teenager now. She just turned 14. So um, she used to tell me when she was little, she'd come to me and say, well, you just tell me a story about my dad. And so I would think of something that Charlie had done when he was little or something like that. Um, but it was very similar. It felt the same way. I, I think I was so devastated because I thought he would hate it. He would have just hated it that his daughter was going to grow up without a dad like he did. And she's only two. And Layla was left to figure out how to raise her daughter without the family's sole provider. Cody Zimmer, 
the 21-year-old pharmacy tech who killed Charlie, would ultimately plead no contest to first-degree manslaughter and be sentenced to 10 years in prison and another five years suspended with credit for time served awaiting sentencing. He would go on to earn his college degree in prison. The State of Oklahoma Pharmacy Board revoked Zimmer's license when blood test results from the time of the crash showed he had the prescription medications of the tranquilizer Xanax, muscle relaxer Flexerol, and sedative Ambien in his system at or above therapeutic doses. Investigators who searched his car found the painkiller hydrocodone and other drugs as well. Zimmer did not have a valid prescription for any of the drugs. In the years after Zimmer's conviction, his family penned vicious, hateful letters to Janet and Layla, blaming them for pushing for a long prison sentence. And his family was so mad at us at the trial. They were so mad at us. They said we were vindictive. And I'm like, we really weren't vindictive. We just asked them to prosecute this case. We asked them to push it forward. I'm sick of this happening to people in my family. And no, it's not okay. I mean, you took a combination of cocktail of drugs. You can't even explain why you would have that much ambient in your body at 9 a.m. I mean, you're young, you have time to recover. You will come home from prison. My son will never come home. The hatefulness from the Zimmer family was shocking to me. But then I thought about it, and I realized it's not so different from other parents I know who haven't held their children responsible for other mistakes or choices. Rather, they blame whoever does hold them accountable. Enabling bad behavior almost always ensures future bad behavior. The end result may very well be taking another's life, but then to still not be able to look in the mirror and see your own culpability is truly unbelievable. We can only drive defensively and pray. Join me next time for episode six, Shana's story, a deadly drive back to Bismarck, North Dakota with college friends and a woman's struggle to survive and thrive after a traumatic brain injury. Special thanks to Louisiana Christian University for partial funding of this project. Proverbs 21, 21. Thank you.